You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Chris, looking forward to this conversation. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, Peter. I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm a research scientist by training. I got my uh, PhD from Duke University in toxicology, worked with neurons, did the research thing for a while. Uh, I, was, uh, I was not paying much attention. I was a genius like everybody, got, got wealthy, uh, and, then, and then promptly uh, lost quite a bit of that so-called wealth because uh, I was listening to my broker and you know, uh, I started getting curious and I looked into the economy, got really concerned by what I was seeing there, long term trajectory, big picture stuff uh, where the United States is headed with debt entitlement programs, things like that, money printing. And these were quaint numbers back then. And then my curiosity led me to connect economy, energy, huge story there, not just for the United States, for the whole world. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting uh, next few decades. And then also the environment. Uh, when I put all three of those E's in one spot, it, it, it really led to some profound changes uh, in my life. Uh, I quit my job, started a block, a terrible career move, but uh, it all worked out. Uh, I, my, my mission and my money are in the same spot now. I, I'm out trying to warn people, tell people, uh, educate people about the big picture changes that are, and uh, that's what I do now. So, Chris, I, I know you talk a lot about resource depletion, and I also know that you view yourself as almost like a futurist as well. So I need you to put on your technological futurist baseball cap on, and I need you to put on your resource depletion baseball cap on as well. What, where's the crossroads here? Does technological innovation prolong the resource depletion or does it not open up whole new opportunities and and perfect examples like that is like the shale boom for people talking about freshwater depletion is it not inevitable that you can uh you know garner uh and harness um ocean water for example and if resources are being depleted with things like private um commercial orbit space orbit flight that Things like technology can always find a solution to, in some shape or form, especially if the payoff in the commodity is valuable enough. Well, it all comes down to really understanding energy and the role of energy. And so from a scientific perspective, all organisms grow into the available energy that they have. And so here's a quick way to look at this. As recently as 100 years ago, farming was, was a 10 to 1 positive return activity. So farmers would go out, they would extend 1,000 calories, and they would grow 10,000 calories, keep 1,000 to keep themselves going. They have 9,000 surplus. So that's, that's you know, when you ask from 100 years ago beyond, you ask, who's the wealthiest people? Well, they were all the people who owned the land because that's where our energy, primary energy source came from, and food being our primary energy source as humans. Today, Peter, that that ratio is exact upside down. There are 10 calories of fossil fuel baked into every calorie that you or I eat. It's the, it's the proverbial fish water. People are so surrounded by this abundance, they're not even aware that it's there, but it's there in every single thing. So 
We wander over technology. People say this to me all the time. Oh, we're going to have solar freaking roadways. We're going to Tesla has a power wall. Uh, and when we look at these, you just have to get a single chart out. Look at total energy consumption quadrillions of BTUs. And this is from everything, right? You got fossil fuels, which is coal, oil, natural gas, you got hydro, you got nuclear. You know, what do we do then? This is where I see challenges, but there's opportunities because I think we're going to have to configure vast portions of our society in terms of how we move ourselves, how we feed ourselves, where we live, how we live. People who can see that coming in advance, uh, I think are could position themselves. So I don't try and predict the future. I just look at the trends, right? Here's, right. A, here's a trend, you know. Guess what? Entitlement programs are really going to bite us at some point. Retirees are going to get left, which is going to be painful. Taxes are going to go up. That's not a prediction. That's just telling you, you know, that's just what the math says. It's, it's a trend. Let's um, take it back because you've already mentioned entitlements. And, and I wanted to highlight to you, um, I want to tell you something. Is Number one is I have your crash course um video series um on my blackberry actually i carry it almost everywhere i don't get a chance to watch it as much as i like to but i do have it there and for anyone that is not familiar about the crash course series how about we try to give um the audience like a synopsis on on some of the the economic paradigms that you discuss about Oh, I'd love to. Uh, so the crash course was really it was sort of my magnum opus. It was it was many years of thinking and 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 what it does is it says, look, we can't just look at the economy in isolation anymore. The economy. If we put this much money in, we'll get this much you know economic activity. Guess what? Things aren't working like they used to. And my explanation for that is that you have to understand that the economy is actually a subset of the energy that we produce, not the other way around. And so once you connect the economy with energy, here's a really interesting insight. Our economy is something that we want to grow. And you, every time you read about it, whether it's a Treasury Secretary statement, a, a Federal Reserve statement, uh, a President statement, whatever, we want more jobs. We'd like to see 10% uh, more homes sold, 3% more cars. Whatever it is, we're looking for the economy to grow by some percent, 5% a year, 2% a quarter, whatever the numbers are. Well, the interesting thing here is that anything growing by some percent over a unit of time is growing exponentially. And this is a really powerful and important context because uh, let's look at it this way. China growing at 7% per year means that if we use this handy thing called a rule of 72, uh, we divide 7 into 72 and we discover that every 10 years, China is going to be completely doubling its economy with 7% growth. So think about that. 10 years, we're going to double China's economic uh, consumption of everything, coal, copper, cement, steel, you name it. And so this idea of exponential economic growth is embedded in every culture on the planet. Everybody wants economic growth. But when we wander over to the energy side of the story, it gets really fascinating because you can't grow an economy without growing your energy. If you don't have energy, you don't have any economy whatsoever. So when we look at that, the first question we should ask ourselves is, look, the world's got $200 trillion of outstanding debt. It's expected to pay all of that back, piling more debt on. That means we're making a big collective bet that the future is going to be bigger than the present. Well, the first question we should ask is, hey, is the energy going to be there? It's a very simple connection to make. It's almost never made. 
The assumption is the energy will always be there, but I can show you reams and reams of data that says, here's when you know, the world production of oil is going to peak. Here's where the net energy from oil probably peaked. Here's the net energy per capita is the most important number that we can have. That's been falling for quite a while now. I think it explains a lot about what's going on in our world. So just connecting those two dots, the economy and energy, Peter, I think gives you both explanatory power. It, it helps you make sense of what we're seeing in terms of stubbornly low growth, high unemployment, things like that. But it's also predictive because it gives you a chance of assessing for yourself whether you think it's likely or not, and we can have different assessments, about whether we're going to get the energy we want, require, expect to support the type of economy that uh, we've uh, piled this debt around in, in anticipation of it coming. And then the third e is the environment, which is taking things from the natural world and also putting things back in. And there, I have to tell you, there's a whole slew of uh, very somewhat depressing statistics around. And so we look at the environment, we say, wow, this is, this is uh, uh, we, not only can we not take things from it forever, the sardine fishery just collapsed in the Pacific Ocean. That's a bad moment. Um, and the cod fishing has collapsed and gone from the Atlantic Ocean. That was a bad moment. These are things that we can start to stack up and say, look, there's, it's clear that either humans are going to have to really shift their narrative about how we interact with the natural world and make it, it our story can't be around just the economy anymore. We have to take these other pieces into event. We have to do some adult-sized long-range planning. And unfortunately, I don't see any of that happening at the government level. So it means you and I and people listening to this have to do some planning on our own. Now, now, Chris, based on all of these uh, trends that you're observing, does this put you under some kind of like economic paradigm in which you prefer a particular model over the other? Well, so, so the response that we take it at uh, my website in the community is called Peak Prosperity. Um, what we do is we start with financial wealth as, as the starting point for the conversation. And we say, look, if, if all you have is money, you're poor, right? Because, because money comes, money goes. And right, they had a lot of money and they were worried about losing it and they, had to, they were scared. And anyway, financial wealth is just one form of wealth or capital. There are seven other forms of capital. And we like people to diversify. So another form of capital that I can look out my window and see on my property is what we call living capital. So I've got a garden, I've got an orchard, and I pay money to have extra compost brought in. So I take my financial capital and I turn it into enhanced living capital. Material capital are the investments I make on my homestead with uh, solar hot water, solar photovoltaics, great returns actually, um, uh, better than I can get out of Wall Street for sure. Uh, social capital, very important. Who do you know? How well do you know them? Who can you really rely on? Build those ropes, those threads with, with your community. Uh, very important. I, I think one of the more important ones. And emotional capital. You know, we've seen again and again that when financial or economic crises happen, it's actually not the financial or economic crises that hurt people. It's the reaction to it. That's what I've done in my own life, and that's what a lot of people in our community does, uh, truly diversify. It's not just having some global equities and, 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 a, and a muni uh, uh, in a treasury bond lab. Chris, so we talked about 
uh, personal finance. We discussed a little bit about some industries and, and resource depletion and, and some of the bigger trends that are happening. Um, I also know you follow uh, geopolitics a little bit. Um, what are some things that you're looking at in terms of geopolitics? Well, it's, it's been absolutely astonishing to me. And so the United States policy in Ukraine has been absolutely, if you, know, if you just take a little time to study it, you'll discover that we had our fingerprints all over what happened in the Maidan uh, revolution or, or uh, you know, unrest that happened that led to the downfall of Yunikovych, who was the then sitting president. And he was pretty much uh, booted from office by the United States Western allies because he didn't sign European Association Agreement back in November of 2013. By February 2014, he's gone. The rest is history. The United States has been saying that it's all Putin's fault. It's clearly not. Uh, there, there's a lot going on there. And so the part that's really mysterious to me in that whole story is that Putin controls roughly 30% of all the gas that Europe uh, consumes. Europe has no second plan E for how they're going to get uh, that they need to uh, run their countries. In terms of the alternatives for Europe in this situation, it seems as if the perfect partner in this case would be the United States, because I even find that in terms of LNG, let's just say LNG shipments around the world, um, countries like Australia and Quator are in a much more advantageous position to be exporting to the Asian nations. Now, where does that leave the United States, especially considering like, you know, their ability to export um, logistically would be very far to some of those other countries? It seems as if Europe might be the inevitable destination, and that would be more of a, a collaboration amongst the, the NATO allies from, from that perspective. And another point in terms of, of China, for example, that, that agreement that was signed in terms of the deal, believe it or not, there was a period of time we actually had an investment in Gazprom, so we follow this quite extensively. The deal was not as big in terms of magnitude as initially anticipated. So despite the number sounding as phenomenal, uh, financial analysts actually looked at it and just said, you know, that was um, less than stellar anticipation as far as the, the, uh, the, you know, the abilities for Gazprom to replace the revenues out of Europe into China. From a revenue deal, I only look at it in terms of supply whole idea of the LNG exports from the United States, this is kind of a murky area because cheap natural gas, uh, everybody and their uncle who could has been building a natural gas consuming device, be it a power plant, uh, an ethane plant, uh, uh, you know, even a gas to liquids, things were on the drawing board, but got scrapped, but who knows, right? So a lot of, lot of consumption coming up. Uh, and, and so I look at the natural gas story and I have some question marks about whether the United States will ever be that powerhouse exporting partner uh, that Europe could count on. If I'm Europe, I'm probably going to count on Qatar. I'm probably going to count on um, trying to get my gas from somewhere else because I don't think the United States is really going to be in a position to be a dominant supplier. Now, Chris, I know you've had a conversation with uh, Porter Sansbury as well, and um, I think he continues to, to even tout the fact that you guys had this great debate about peak oil and and, you know, everyone has their own different view on this. But I guess referring to market, because I, I try to be as agnostic to this as possible, 
when you take a look at natural gas prices, at least on the NYMEX, for example, there seems to be uh, almost a consensus, especially from a price perspective, that, hey, gas is going to be abundant uh, over the next several years. And if you look at, like, you know, future forward contracts, it seems to reflect that at that juncture. Now, obviously, there are various different research studies and reports that have potentially conflicting views. How, well, why do you think the market is behaving the way that it is? And why is it so extremely bullish about, um, you know, this, this whole shale revolution and the equities in that space seem to reflect that? And the natural gas price on NYMEX at least seems to reflect that. And, you know, the international prices seem to just be where they've been over the last few years already. You know, from an investing standpoint, I'm much less bullish on on the shale revolution um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first is that, you know, in any mature industry, I love to see positive free cash flows. I, I, I really dislike um, accounting shenanigans. I really uh, like like my numbers clean and clear. And it's one of the things I look at is free cash flow all okay. the time. So, so the shale industry right now is pretty mature because the average shale well depletes 85% within the first three years, sometimes as high as 75% in the first year, right? So by the time you're three or four years into your drill program, you should be starting to hit some sort of a steady state, right? Um, and what we saw was that from 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, I don't have any data for 14 yet, but it's going to be worse because we had the price plunge in 2014. For all of those years, oil was either rising in price or safely over 90 to $100 a barrel. Of the 80 companies that I follow in the shale space, Collectively, they had whopping massive negative free cash flows every single one of those years. I want to see positive cash flows. You look at the amount of debt they took on, right, because they bought Kodiak, so they're sitting on $5.8 billion total debt. That leads to that fantastic question, though, Chris, is that, you know, what, what are the geologists indicating in terms of potential supply for, let's say, some of these EMP companies or anyone that's building up infrastructure? Because as you know, I generally believe that um, capital makes people much more efficient. And who is willing to provide that much capital outlay if there's not such a, a clear trajectory on, you know, the supply of, of LNG that they could actually produce to, to build up all this infrastructure? One of the companies that we look at is actually Kinder Morgan. We built a fantastic position. Its balance sheet is probably a lot more superior to many of these other companies that we're talking about. And they're actually building like the toll road for um, the transport of LNG throughout the nation. So how does that work in which, you know, executives and geologists uh, work in tandem to assess, um, you know, the feasibility of many of these projects and then, you know, invest this amount and put their balance sheets in those situations without seeing potentially light out of the uh, end of the tunnel? Well, I, I think I think the picks and shovels approach is the right one to take here. Uh, to, to me, there's listen, there's no question. Here, here's what's going to happen. First of all, oil has to go up in price and gas has to go up in price, natural gas, I mean, yeah. because simply they are below their all in cost of production. No commodity, but especially not can ever hang out below their all in cost of production for very long. What's the all in so, cost so, for oil and natural gas in the United States right now, in your opinion? Um. So it really depends by the play, but averaging across them all, the number I'm most comfortable with is about 750 per therm okay. for natural gas, and it's probably around 80 to 85 
the sweet spots in the shale play, but it goes up rapidly from there. Okay. So the Utica, Utica oil play, you know, when they're getting 30 barrels per day out of the wells, you need, I don't know, $300 to make, but they're just not viable. Um, you, know, you saw this, right, with oil pulling out of the Mississippi formation yeah. in Kansas and yada yada, right? So, so the sweet spots, I, I'm pretty bullish on. The less sweet spots are going to command a higher price. So when people say, how much are we going to get out of the Bakken? I'm like, I don't know. If oil goes to 200 a barrel, we'll probably get twice as much as even the EIA thinks, which is, I would put that probably closer to seven, maybe eight billion barrels coming out of that play at the right price. But it's got to be at the right price. And today isn't the right price. So, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the whole shale dynamic, you know, one of the things that's played to this was the Federal Reserve driving interest rates so low that people were yield starved. So they chased a bunch of yield. It never made sense, Peter, to have um, certain of these uh, shale operators who had just marginal plays at the edge. Anybody who scratched at them could find out uh, just how marginal they were getting uh, junk uh, rollover financing at 5%. It was just nuts, right? Mm-hmm. But that's what markets are for. People will discover just how nuts um, and, are, and are beginning to figure that out. I'm very bullish on these things, but not these prices. When the prices are right, good operators, better operators, worse ones, all of that, that's what this shakeout is going to give us at this point in time. We'll go after these things, but uh, not until the price, not not in the same uh, pace we did, uh, let's say, even a year ago, not until um, uh, we see much higher prices and those are stable for a while. I think there's, there's a bit more caution in the field right now. So you're saying that a byproduct of this is um, basically loose money due to the environment that has basically got people to chase yield in return. And as a byproduct, this industry, uh, or at least this whole shale revolution, has been a benefactor of that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That plus a really, really low cost of capital. Right. If you have more normal cost of capital, the IRRs on this project uh, clearly uh, off pretty quickly, uh, just like any other industry. So, so the cheap cost of capital, the absolute flood of liquidity, yield starts. Well, Chris, it's been a fascinating conversation. I suggest maybe we do a, a podcast again sometime soon to discuss more about like more of the chapters, I guess, of, of Crash Course and to get an update on, on where we're at in terms of geopolitics. Love to. That would be a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Chris. Talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.